Let us bow together in prayer. Still our hearts, we pray thee, dear Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in these moments, turn our eyes from ourselves, from our neighbors, from our enemies, from our circumstances, and focus them on the only one who has the answer. And through thy holy word, give us that answer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As those of you who've come to this service informed tonight will know already, we have departed from our normal schedule and from the order of service which was outlined in our messenger in order to devote this evening's service to a memorial service in recognition of and in respect of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was the object and victim of an assassin's bullet. My task tonight is not to whitewash him, to eulogize him, or indeed to focus attention expressly on him, but rather to expound the infallible word of God on the theme that engaged most of his interest and occupied most of his time. For I believe that God has an answer to racial discrimination. And we're not going to men tonight, or to leaders tonight, or even to preachers tonight to find an answer. We're going to confront the word of God squarely and fairly and find what it has to say to our waiting hearts and sad hearts concerning this great issue of racial discrimination today. Known not only in the United States of America, but in Britain, in Europe, in Russia, in South America, in South Africa, and all over the world. And so, solemnly, and yet I trust helpfully, we're going to look at this question from the Word of God. God's answer to racial discrimination. Without doubt and without question, this is the burning issue of modern time. To ignore or avoid the problem is to fail in our witness and to plead the impracticability and irrelevance, if not the impotence, of the gospel we preach. It is well, therefore, that we examine together what the Bible has to say about this subject. Has God an answer to racial discrimination? I believe God gives us a threefold answer in his holy book, and we're going to look at those three answers very briefly and very simply. The first answer is what I'm going to call the sociological answer in the light of Scripture. The consistent witness of Scripture is that God is the creator and redeemer of all mankind. And from such a body of teaching, there emerges two very important matters I draw to your attention. The first is what we call in Scripture the unity of the human family. The unity of the human family. When that prince of preachers, the Apostle Paul, addressed the Athenians on Mars Hill, he looked into the faces of men and women who had a great idea about the racial superiority. And to such people he said this, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That verse is so important that I'm going to quote it again. God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Few words, even in Paul's teaching, are more profound and significant. He states here that the one origin of man is inseparably bound up with the Godhead. The origin of everyone here tonight, the origin of all the nations of the earth, 
are inseparably bound up with the unity of the Godhead. In other words, we have no more right to discriminate between nations than we have any right to discriminate between the persons of the Trinity. In his wonderful wisdom, God has so determined seasons and appointed habitations that there is a variety and therefore a beauty about the different characteristics of the peoples of the earth. For instance, the Hebrew concept of God and righteousness, the Greek sense of beauty and wisdom, the Roman idea of law and order, the Teutonic view of truthfulness and courage, the Celtic way of impulsiveness and courage and discipline, and the Negro trait of patience and sacrifice have all their particular contribution to the unity of the human race. All local circumstances of soil and climate that influence those characteristics about are about 100% the purposes of God in bringing together that variegated glory which manifests his creative wisdom. Thus, even though races can be divided in the Caucasian, Mongolian, and the Negro, ultimately and eventually, they stem from one source, even God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our Creator, our Sustainer. So no one can hold the biblical doctrine of the sociological implications of our great gospel and be a race discriminator. I repeat, no one can hold the biblical doctrine of the sociological implications of our gospel and discriminate between men, races, or nations. But with the unity of the human family, there is the unity of the heavenly family. When we come to the question of the church, which, as Dr. Griffith Thomas says, is a society of saved sinners, discrimination is utterly incompatible without, with what the gospel stands for. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, national, cultural, and sociological barriers are swept away when we're baptized into Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we cannot talk about Europeans. We cannot talk about Americans. We cannot talk about Africans. We cannot talk about Orientals. When baptized into Jesus Christ, not just as the human family, but rather as the heavenly family, we are all one in Christ Jesus, and we're neither Americans, Europeans, Africans, or Orientals. We are Christians, all one in Christ Jesus. This reminds me of the charming story of a black man who requested membership at a certain church some while ago, and when refused, he stood aghast and surprised. And when the pastor asked him why he looked so surprised, he replied, well, sir, I wasn't applying as a Negro. I was coming as a Christian. The sociological answer to the problem of racism in our land today. Sociologically, as taught in Scripture, there is the unity of the human family. One blood, 
having one source and God our creator and redeemer. We're one family in Jesus Christ, a unity which emerges out of his cross work by which we're baptized into the one body by the Holy Ghost, where discrimination and differences of color, race, or rank are no longer known. We're one in Jesus Christ our Lord. But there is another great answer that God gives us in the Word of God, not only the sociological answer, but the nomological answer. Nomology is the study and science of law. Nomos is law or the science of law. And since all law has a biblical foundation, we need to examine what the scriptures have to say on this most important subject. And I know no vast passage in the Word of God which is more explicit and elucidating than James chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And James tells us right here with your New Testaments open that racial or social discrimination is a total violation of the law of God. And James goes to the trouble of naming this law of God. He calls it the royal law. He calls it the law of liberty. And in that tremendous statement, to which we'll come in a moment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, James picks up everything said in the Old Testament, everything said in the New Testament, everything said in every true law-abiding constitution. For having settled the vertical, thou shalt love God with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy might. Yes, and with all thy soul, he adds, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The nomological answer. And if you have your New Testaments open at this passage, I want you to notice that in the light of that holy law of God, which I repeat is the basis of all our legal system, we talk about our equal rights, we talk about our civil rights. We talk about the equality of men upon the face of the earth. That right which no one can ever take from us is based wholly and supremely upon this tremendous divine enunciation. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And James says, failure to recognize that is first of all an act of unsociable evil. It is an unsociable act. In verse 4 we read, Are ye not partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? He has cited an illustration, quite common in local churches, even in our country today, where two people come into a church, and by the very sense of the language, it appears that these two are unregenerate men, candidates for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as they come into the sanctuary, the ushers observe that one of them is dressed in wealth. In fact, the Greek has it in gay clothing. And he has an expensive ring on his hand. The other man is shabbily dressed and is obviously poor. The usher sees them both come in and signals to the wealthy-looking man to come forward and take one of the chief seats within the sanctuary. And then points to the poor man to come and sit not on a seat, but under his footstool. For the usher hasn't only a seat, he has a footstool, and he asks the poor man to sit under it. And having dramatized his point from an obvious illustration or incident in the local church in which James himself worshipped, he asks the question, are ye not partial 
in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? In other words, James shows that discrimination, social or racial, is unsociable if it makes wealth and dress and power more important than sinners, souls and saints. And if you want to know what is a blinding and social sin, it is the sin of partiality and respect of persons. It's a breach of God's law, and for this men will be judged. But it's not only an unsociable act, will you observe, it is, in, it is an unspiritual act. Not only unsocial, but unspiritual. For in the next verse we read, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him, but ye have despised the poor. And the Greek is strong there. Ye have despised the poor. There's venom there. Ye have despised the poor. James is saying the rule of thumb in terms of God's purposes is to reach the common man, to reach down to the poor. It's the common people who heard Jesus gladly, and this has been so down through the centuries. The exalted have been made low, the poor have been lifted up, while the rich and the religious crucified the Son of God and spat in his face. The humble and the poor received him and believed in him. And says the Lord Jesus Christ, you're spiritually undiscerning if you do not realize that history demonstrates and has proved again and again that it's the simple and the poor who meet Jesus Christ in saving faith. They are the heirs of the kingdom of God, but ye have despised them. You violated not only a social law, but you have violated a spiritual law. For the spiritual law is the spiritual law of discernment. And a man who has discernment doesn't look at what a man wears, doesn't look at the color of his skin, doesn't listen to the accent of his voice. A spiritual man, by the very witness of the Holy Spirit, knows whether or not a man is indwelt by the Holy Ghost, and if he isn't, whether he's ready to receive the Holy Ghost through the preaching of the gospel. And to bar such a person from the gospel of Jesus Christ or from the fellowship of Jesus Christ is the violation of a spiritual law. God's nomological answer is this warning that we violate not the social law of the Word of God that we violate not the spiritual law of the Word of God. But thirdly, will you notice that we violate not the civil law of the Word of God? For in the very next verses 8 and 9, he says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if, if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are condemned by the law as transgressors. There is a social law. There is a spiritual law. There is a civil law. And God holds us accountable for breaking any one of them. And he chooses, remarkably enough, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the possibility of breaking the civil law. He says, whosoever breaks this law, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, has committed sin and is condemned by the law and is a transgressor. Now, of course, this principle applies to the law of our land or any land that knows anything of biblical and enlightened legislation. The Bible says and says clearly we must submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. 
every creation of man, every constitution, every legislation, every creation of man were to submit to that for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. And whether Martin Luther King in his attempt to bring legislation to bear on the injustices and equalities and the poverty and the squalor of our land come to a final fruition or not. I want to tell you this, that God in heaven is going to hold this country responsible in every other country. And just as men and women are going to stand for judgment, so are nations. But when everything and anything becomes law, and that law elucidates what the Bible has taught from time immemorial, then we're committed to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. But if we had no such law in this country, the Church of Jesus Christ is committed to the Word of God, and failure to submit to it is a violation not only of social law, of spiritual law, but also of civil law as taught in the Word of God. And this is God's nomological answer to the problem of race discrimination. So there is a sociological answer, the unity of the human family, the unity of the heavenly family. There's a nomological answer, the law of God, social, the law of God, spiritual, the law of God, civil. And to have respect of persons in the sense in which we discriminate socially or racially is to violate God's holy law, to commit sin and to stand as transgressors before the bar of God. But finally, and most important of all, we find in the word of God what I'm terming the theological answer. And that's right down where we live. The theological answer, the whole body of divinity reveals without equivocation or even elucidation three tremendous truths which are bound up with the whole concept of theology. Theology is the study or the science of God. Theology. Theology has within it the concepts of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity. Three persons in one substance are God, blessed forevermore. And to treat anything theologically is to find out what God the Father has to say, what God the Son has to say, what God the Spirit has to say about this whole matter of race and race discrimination. And with this, we conclude tonight. First of all, God the Father loves all people without race discrimination. God the Father loves all people without race discrimination. Looking into the face of a theological professor, our Lord Jesus Christ made the greatest statement we find anywhere in the Bible concerning his love. The Jew imagined that he was the only one in the line of God's redemptive purpose. But Jesus Christ exploded that theory and philosophy in his face when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In that sweep and embrace of God's love, we have, first of all, the world of mankind everywhere. The world of mankind everywhere. And I want to tell you men in this audience tonight that God loves you. God loves you. I can't tell you anything more wonderful in all the world than just that. God loves you. And he sent his blessed son here upon earth to demonstrate that love. 
And one of the greatest studies of the Gospels is the encounter that Jesus Christ had with men. I love that story of the rich young ruler who came to the Savior on one occasion, dressed in his purple, and dropping there in the dust of the street, looked up into his face and said, Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And the evangelist Mark tells us, and Jesus, beholding him, loved him, loved him. I never cease to thrill in silent wonder. As I stand in spirit beside the graveside of Lazarus, watch the Savior come to that spot and see Mary and Martha and loved ones weeping. And then in his humanity, recalling all that Lazarus meant to him as a friend. And then disturbing his spirit, as the Greek has it, bowing his head and weeping. The Jews who looked on said, Behold, how he loved him. God loves the world of mankind. God loves the world of womankind everywhere. This is the wonder of our gospel. Sitting in this sanctuary tonight, that doesn't mean anything to you ladies. Why? Because you've never traveled or you've never read. But I happen to have been born and bred and brought up in a country where women were chattels. And it didn't matter what color their skin was. If they began to sprout three or four white hairs, they were clopped over the head and thrown to the crocodiles. When twins were ever born, they likewise met a death by being thrown to the wolves. And no daughter was allowed to precede a son without meeting its death before many hours old. But thank God we've got a gospel that elevates the woman to the position that God intended her to have. Remember, she was the crown of creation and that she was the final act of God. Adam having already been created, she was taken out of Adam and made an helpmeet and the supreme gentility of our blessed Savior in his approach to women throughout his ministry is one of the charming studies and fascinating studies of the New Testament. And we read that Mary and Martha were loved by the Savior. Women folk across this audience, black or white or any other color, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. But blessed be his name, we go further still. The world of mankind, the world of womankind, the world of childkind. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves the boys and girls. Yes, he said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He looked into those dancing eyes. He heard those golden voices and he welcomed them to his side. And one of the few times where the Savior, the Savior, burned with holy indignation against his own beloved disciples was when those disciples came between him and little children. And the text we often quote with mild and mute voice almost, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven, was never said in that tone. It was a rebuke. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And it's our master who said, Anyone who dares to put a stumbling block in the way of a little child whose instinct, yes, whose very instinct is to find refuge in the arms of Jesus, it were better for that man that a millstone were hanged around his neck and he was dragged by a donkey to the seaside, put into a boat, carried to a deep spot, and tumbled over without any burial ceremony. God loves the world of mankind. God loves the world of womankind. God loves 
the world of childkind. God loves the world. You can discriminate, but God's love never discriminates. The theological answer concerning God the Father. But there is another answer. The theological answer concerning God the Son. God the Son. Let me repeat, God the Son saves all people without discrimination. God loves them. Christ saves them without discrimination. And I was pondering some of these scriptures this afternoon and my heart just leapt with a new sense of release in the preaching of the gospel. When our Savior commissioned his disciples, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every creature. Black and yellow, red and white, all are precious in his sight. Preach the gospel to every creature. Whosoever shall believe and is baptized shall be saved. Whosoever believeth not shall be damned. But every creature, man, wherever he is. But not only that, man, whoever he is. For there is no difference, says Paul in Romans, between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I cannot if that call comes out of the jungles of the Congo. I cannot if that call comes out of the jungles of mystery in Manhattan. I cannot where that call comes if it's in faith in Jesus Christ. He shall be saved. She shall be saved. God loves all people. Christ saved. All people, wherever they are, whoever they are, yes, and whatever they are. The Son of God loves people, yes, with the Father, but he saves them, whatever they are. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, that is, unto salvation. Notice that this verse does not say not any, but not many. And it's an interesting thing, as I pointed out a few moments ago, that invariably God bypasses intellectual attainments. By and large, God bypasses influential achievements. By and large, God bypasses indigenous advancements. For not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty after the flesh, not many noble after the flesh are called, but he does call and he does say, Men and women, wherever they are. Men and women, whoever they are. Men and women, whatever they are. Just as God loves, Christ saves. So God the Father loves all people without discrimination. God the Son saves all people without discrimination. And finally, God the Holy Spirit claims all people without discrimination. On the day of Pentecost, Peter tells us, that the Holy Ghost was poured out from heaven in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel upon all flesh, upon all flesh. And from that moment onwards, the mighty spirit began to claim not only the ones and the twos, but the thousands and tens of thousands until Dr. Luke uses a Greek word from which we get our term myriads, myriads all over the world tonight that flag of the church of jesus christ flutters in the wind and i'm going to tell you every color is represented yes and every nation and every tongue and every tribe one day we're going to stand around the throne a multitude that no man can number out of every tribe and tongue and nation 
Why? Because the Holy Spirit has continued to claim his own. But I think the thrilling story is the one told in the Acts of the Apostles. For as we look at that wonderful, wonderful book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, we find that the Spirit claimed Jews. God the Spirit claimed Greek. God the Spirit claimed Romans. God the Spirit claimed Ethiopians. God the Spirit claimed Jews. And I suppose the greatest illustration on the page of Holy Scripture, and particularly in the Acts of the Apostles, is the conversion of the greatest Jew who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ himself, and that was Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. A brilliant intellect, one of the many mighty and wise and noble that Jesus Christ called, and when he saw that light above the brightness of the meridian sun, and through that light saw none other than Jesus, whom he was persecuted, you remember the cry of his heart, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And in that moment of time, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit quickened his dead spirit, and he became a transformed man. And from that moment, he was changed from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. And a Jew was claimed by the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit claimed not only Jews, but God the Spirit claimed Greeks. As we turn over the pages of Scripture, we come to the 16th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we find a beautiful little story of a family situation where a grandmother and a mother so wonderfully reared and trained in the Scriptures that they were able to influence a young, brilliant student, a timid boy, Growing up very slowly, his name was Timotheus. And Paul in his evangelistic crusades breaks into that city. And drawn by the love and graciousness of grandmother and mother, he spends time in that home. And very soon he sees a tender life, a formative life, prepared by the teaching of the word of God to receive the truth of the gospel. And he ministered to him the word of salvation, and Timothy was born again claimed by the Spirit, and ever after, Paul could talk of him as my son in the faith. He was a Greek. He was a Greek. The Spirit of God claims Jews. The Spirit of God claims Greeks. The Spirit of God claims Romans. And the story of Cornelius is a highlight again in the ministry of personal evangelism. Here is a man who's a Roman, every inch of him, from the tip of his head to the sole of his feet, but he's so dissatisfied with the power of Rome as well as the pollution of Rome. He longs for a satisfaction to that aching void. He becomes a proselyte, and he offers his alms and his gifts to God, and they come up as an acceptable offering to God. And God looks down from heaven and sees a Roman there, humbled in the dust as he seeks the longing heart to find its rest in God. And you remember how God took a prejudiced man, a man with racial discrimination. His name was Peter. While Peter slept on that housetop, God gave him a vision, a vision from heaven in which he saw a sheet let down from heaven. And as that sheet came down, he saw all manner of animals on that sheet, animals that were condemned in Old Testament scriptures from a dietetic point of view. And he heard the command of God, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. How can a slave say no to his master? But Peter, the impulsive, had to learn, as he did many times, the lesson. 
of submitting to the authority of the word of God, nevertheless at thy word, as he learned on one occasion. And again, you won't wash my feet, Lord. Very well, said the Savior. Very well, said the Savior, that you have no part with me. So Peter said, the whole of me, head, body, feet, and everything. Now, once again, not so, Lord. Wait a minute, wait a minute, said God. I want you to tell me why you can't eat what I have cleansed. That which I have cleansed, call thou not common. And in that moment, the prejudiced, racist Peter was pulverized by the vision of God. And without another question, he stepped down from his hiding place and met the messengers already timed to knock at the door as he reached the door. And those messengers took him to Cornelius's house. And as he began to preach the gospel, something happened, a miracle happened. The Holy Ghost came down. The Holy Ghost came down from heaven, just as he did at Pentecost, baptizing those who were mainly Jews into that first expression of the local church. And he saw a miracle happen. The Holy Ghost came down and baptized into that same body in which were Jews already, Romans, Romans, Gentiles. And he saw the miracle himself and had to go and explain it all in Jerusalem that God has visited the Gentiles. The Spirit claimed a Jew. The Spirit claimed a Greek. The Spirit claimed a Roman. And finally, the Spirit claimed an Ethiopian, a Negro. A man of brilliant intellect, a man of mighty training, under Cain Dace, queen of the Ethiopians. And as that man, again dissatisfied, possibly proselyte, but a man obviously trained in the languages, reading either Hebrew or Greek, for Isaiah might have been in the Septuagint version, it might have been in the Hebrew version, but he read it. And as he's returning from Jerusalem disillusioned and dissatisfied with the formality and the ritual of a dead religion, and he's going back dissatisfied, God catches up Philip out of the great revival in Samaria and says, go into the desert and you're going to find a man there. He's a strategic man. Presently he sees the great retinue, this chancellor of the exchequer, this treasurer, of the great government of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, traveling in his chariot with his great retinue. And very courteously, he comes alongside and sees this man poring over a manuscript, reading from none other than Isaiah 53. And he asks, what is an intelligent question? Understandest thou what thou readest? It wasn't rude. It was the kind of question he should have asked. And the Ethiopian looks down at him and he says, how can I accept someone should guide me? And he steps up into the chariot. And that Ethiopian, that brilliant black man, that Negro, asks a question and it has engaged the theologians down through the centuries. And amongst those who don't take the fundamentalist evangelical view, they've never answered it yet. A boom speaketh this man of himself or of some other man, some other prophet. Was it Isaiah? Was it Jeremiah or someone else of whom Isaiah speaks? Ah, says Philip. I know who it was. It wasn't Jeremiah. It wasn't Isaiah. It wasn't any other prophet. This is Jesus. And he preached unto him, Jesus. And that Ethiopian sees Jesus in Isaiah 53. And he realized that he's the sheep that's gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And in a confrontation with Jesus Christ, that black man, that Negro, that Ethiopian 
is claimed by the Spirit of God. For believing into Jesus, he went down into the water to be baptized, that signifying the baptism already taken place in which he was immersed into the body of Christ by the Holy Ghost. And the Spirit of God caught away Philip and the eunuch, the black man, the Negro, went on his way rejoicing. The theological answer concerning racial discrimination. God the Father loves all people. God the Son saves all people. God the Spirit claims all people without any discrimination. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which could also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.